Okay, opening your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We're really going to be focusing on only one verse in Mark 8, but we're going to read the whole context. We're going to read verses 31 to 38, with a focus on verse 38. So this is actually going to be an introduction to a mini-series going through the great themes of Genesis and literally um, the great themes of the Bible, or maybe the big story of God and his world. So we're going to be taking a look at creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Um, how they're all found in the very first book, the most foundational book of the Bible, Genesis. And we're going to see how the New Testament authors would often go back to this uh, foundational book to establish the truth of God and show what's real and God's perspective, which is the real perspective on reality, the world that he created. So we're going to um, take a look today just on that one verse speaking about um, Jesus and his words. So hear the word of God to you. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Thus ends the reading. God's holy inerrant word. May he strengthen your hearts with it this very day. As we look at that text, I uh, can't help but think of the idea and the concept of shame. Well, what is shame? Well, ultimately, it's a dreadful byproduct of guilt. You know, when you think or you say or you do something that you believe to be wrong or inappropriate. You know, some things like rebelling against the word of the God who made you and cares for you should make you feel shame, and it should be repented of. You know, like when Adam and Eve ate from the tree God told them not to eat from, they immediately experienced what? Shame. And it's a good thing to be ashamed of such behavior. To not feel such shame when you sin is to be in a very, very dangerous spiritual condition. Now, if you've sat under my 
preaching for any length of time, you know that one of my favorite quotes is this. The greatest of all faults is to be conscious of none. Well, the book of Proverbs talks about the brazen adulteress who feels no pangs of guilt for engaging in adultery. So Proverbs 30, 20 puts it this way. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. Now, this is a dangerous place to be because in order to receive the forgiveness of sins, you have to acknowledge your sin. You have to confess it. You have to turn from it and then trust in the finished work of Jesus. Now, you're not going to do that if you don't think you've done anything wrong. So shame isn't always a bad thing. God uses it to help us realize the evilness of our sin. That we might have a sense of our need to flee to him for mercy and for forgiveness in Christ. I don't know if you ever thought about it this way, but there's some shame that's actually bad for your spiritual health. We just read about it in Mark's gospel. It's a false sense of feeling like you've done something evil and morally disgusting when in actuality you're merely upholding the truth in love in a world that has completely lost its moral compass. Now it's this kind of shame that Jesus himself condemns and commands us not to give in to. So for instance, in Mark 8.38, our text today Jesus said this, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now, why would anyone be ashamed of Jesus' words? I'll tell you why. Because his words are so diametrically opposed to the world's words, to their perspective on life, to their values their concept of what's right and what's wrong. They sound so strange to the world, be, almost as if they were coming from another planet, from Mars. And Jesus knows the extreme pressure his people will be under from the world that he describes as sinful and adulterous generation to conform to their way of seeing the world, their concepts of what's good or what's bad. Even the people that we think of as nice or respectable or good old folks will at times try to make us feel shame if we stand up for Jesus' words. What? They say. You believe Jesus is the only way? What about all the other religions? Are you saying they're all going to hell if they don't convert? I can't believe you of all people believe that. That's not very generous, kind, or open-minded of you. Man, I didn't know you were one of those small, narrow-minded people. I always thought you were more well-educated and loving than that. Man, what's that all about? Trying to make you feel shame for simply believing Jesus' words found in John 14, verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, you will be punished by the world in this life if you proclaim that from the rooftops. But you'll be rewarded by Jesus in the life to come if you unashamedly take a stand 
for his words. What an evil, mixed up, crooked place we live in where even polite society will try to shame you for lovingly and compassionately telling them their only remedy for the universal problem of sin. And sin is way worse than the coronavirus. And we know where they can go for a cure. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2, verses 14 to 15. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Now, how are you going to let the world or even some professing believer who, who has allowed the world's thinking to infiltrate their thinking shame you for holding out the word of life? Eternal life. See, God's word calls it like it is. We live in a crooked and depraved generation. That's what Paul says in the word of God. They're crooked, in other words, not straight. The word in the Greek means winding, bent, or morally twisted. Then the other word Paul uses, perverse. That means distorted, corrupted, the opposite of the shape it's supposed to be. Now, I have astigmatism, and that's because something in my eye is not shaped correctly, so I do not view the world as it is. It's warped. And Paul's saying spiritually that's what the world is, morally twisted. Now listen, when we uphold Christ's words, the word of God, the crooked, perverse world around us will try to turn the tables and make us feel ashamed as if we were the ones saying something perverse and twisted. But think about it, my brothers and sisters in Christ. How perverse is it to feel shame and embarrassment over the holy, true, good, purifying words of the God who created us and everything else and who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. Galatians 1.4. Did you catch that? I don't know if you missed that or not. He gave himself to rescue us from the present evil age. Not so that we can conform to it, feel at home and comfortable in it, but that we might be rescued from it. Now, you know, I got to be honest, I feel bad enough when I find myself feeling embarrassed over Jesus' words or even failing to speak up out of fear of being labeled a narrow-minded bigot or a male chauvinist or a hate monger or, my favorite one, unloving. And I truly repent for giving in to that fear at times and not standing up for the truth of God's word. And I beg Jesus for mercy. And I ask God for a fresh filling of his Holy Spirit to help me stand firm next time. Amen? I hope you do. You pray that as well when you falter. And I mean it with everything that's within me when I pray, thank you, Lord, for not treating me as my sins deserve. You know, we simply can't thank and praise God enough for the grace he shows us in Christ every day. Can I get a witness? But when we as a church, as the body of Christ, actually begin to agree with the world and try to shame our brothers and sisters in Christ for having the faith, hope, 
and courageous love to stand by Jesus' words, come what may. As Popeye used to say, it's all I can stands and I can't stands no more. Really, brothers and sisters, when, when are we going to be? When are we going to say together, in one accord, enough is enough? Now, human beings have been on this planet a minimum of ten thousand years. I don't care. You know, we could, we could try to figure out exactly how long. You may have differences of opinion here, but let's, for the sake of argument, say at least ten thousand. And you know, the world around us, after 10,000 years or more, still can't give a straight answer to the question, what is man? Or what does it mean to be male or female? Or who determines what gender someone is? Or how about, what is marriage? Who has the right to define it and set its guidelines? Is divorce a good or a bad thing? Is it ever permissible? Is it always permissible? Are husbands and wives' roles in marriage and in the church completely interchangeable, or do they have distinct roles by design? Now, it's somewhat understandable why the world that rejects the Bible's claim to be the very word of God is mixed up on these matters. What doesn't make sense is why some in the church, those who claim to believe that the Bible is the very word of God, seem just as confused as the world on these things. Now why? Is it because God has not spoken on these things? Or that he hasn't spoken clearly? No, my brothers and sisters, God has clearly spoken on these issues. It's, I believe, Mark Twain who said it. It's not the things in the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the things that I do understand that bother me. When Jesus was questioned as to whether or not it's okay to divorce your wife for any and every reason, where did he go to prove that with the exception of adultery, what God has joined together, let man not separate? He went back to the beginning. He went to creation. He quotes Genesis 2, 24. That's found in Matthew 9, 19, 4 to 6. When addressing the roles of husbands and wives and men and women in the church, where do the apostles go to expound on God's will for husbands, wives, and men and women in God's family, the church? You guessed it. They go back to Genesis, where the creation of man and woman and marriage is recorded for us in God's word. And we must not be ashamed of the word of God as it's found in Genesis, because it is the word of Christ. Now listen, some people, you know, they have the red letter Bible. You know, they think that the, the words that Jesus spoke in the New Testament, you know, they have them in red, that they have more authority than the rest of the scriptures. Okay, let's go with that. Let's say that I'm a, I'm a red letter Christian. But here's the only issue with that. What do the red letters say? The letters of Je the, the words of Jesus. They say, listen to the black letters. So Jesus tells us that Genesis is authoritative truth from God. So they are his words. That's where he goes to prove that marriage is between one man and one woman in a holy commitment and covenant of marriage before God and man. And that it's only the exception of adultery that you're allowed to. Um, the, the innocent party is allowed to get 
a divorce. Now, Paul also adds in 1 Corinthians 7, abandonment. But that's an issue for another day. In our culture today, which one of you here doesn't feel even the slightest tinge of embarrassment to say, yes, men and women are equal, but God has created them with different and distinct roles, and roles are not interchangeable. It's not an easy thing to say out loud in our culture today. And yet that's precisely what the apostles taught. Paul and Peter, by the way, we're always throwing Paul under the bus, but Peter does the same thing. In his epistle, he goes back to Genesis to prove the roles that God has ordained for husbands and wives. Now, one of the greatest needs in the church of Jesus Christ today is a deep, heartfelt, biblically informed doctrine of creation. Because the gospel cannot be rightly and clearly understood apart from a basic understanding of the Bible's teaching on creation. Listen. What's the gospel? It's the good news that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead to save us from our sins. Hallelujah. That's awesome. It really is. But here's the question. What is sin? Hear me on this. If we don't acknowledge that divorcing our spouse for any reason other than adultery or abandonment, mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, then how can we repent of it and be forgiven of it? If we don't acknowledge that God made us male and female, and it's not our prerogative to try to change our sex, then how can we repent of it and ask God for mercy and grace to live as the man or the woman he created us to be? And how in the world can we ask for help and mercy to fight our sinful impulses and desires that run contrary, not just to the holy law of God, but against nature, the way God lovingly designed us? See, these issues aren't merely social issues or even moral issues. They're gospel issues. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, these things have everything to do with the gospel because we used to be these wicked things. But we've been washed. Hallelujah. We've been justified. We've been sanctified. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Please listen carefully to me here. When we're ashamed of God's word in order to be accepted and loved and welcomed by those clearly living in a way that's contrary to God's word, we're working with the devil. And giving those living in a way that's opposed to the standards upheld in God's word the impression that they're okay with God when they most certainly are not. 
That they have nothing to fear come judgment day when in reality God's word says they will not inherit the kingdom if they persist in flouting the authority of his word and continuing to live this way. Now, the question of what makes human beings different than other animals. What is marriage? Who instituted it? What's its purpose? What, constitute a God, what constitutes a God-ordained, legitimate marriage in God's eyes? Who determines one's sex? Are there God-given roles between husband and wife in the family? Are there any role distinctions between men and women in the church, God's family? They're all gospel questions because to be on the wrong side of them is to be on the wrong side, listen to me, of God's created order. It's not merely to be opposed to God's moral law. It's to kick against and shake your fist at the very way God has created and ordered his world. That very world he created in the space of six days and that he declared good. Now, if there's one thing we've heard emphasized since the inception of New City Fellowship of Atlantic City, and hope for Atlantic City, is that one major sign that Jesus is who he claims to be is that the gospel is preached to the poor. And it's still our duty and privilege today to continue his ministry by preaching the good news to the poor. But hear me on this. Hear Jesus on this. The good news is not, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. You continue living in sin with abandon even embrace it and God will be totally fine with it that's not the gospel listen we all have sinful propensities that we have to fight daily every day some days more relentlessly than others and of course we have to be kind compassionate and sympathetic to folks who struggle with unnatural sinful desires but what we cannot do and I'm talking to the church now, those who claim the name of Jesus and the cleansing power of his blood. We cannot redefine God's created order in the name of loving our neighbor. It's never loving to be an accomplice in someone's spiritual self-destruction. Now pause. Sila, as the Psalms put it. Take a breather. We, we all know of people who love everything I've said up to this point. They'll say amen. And then they'll proceed to preach mean, hateful words against all who live contrary to God's created order. Whether it's the so-called church that goes to the funerals of homosexuals and holds up truly hateful signs that say awful things like God hates fags and things of that nature. Or a self-righteous brother or sister in Christ who says, Hurtful things like, I just don't know how you can be a believer and struggle with that particular sin. Those misapplications of the truth don't negate the truth. They just show that those folks need to repent of the malice and self-righteousness in their hearts. They're using a caricature of the truth to spew out hate and unrighteous anger. Now, we who feel the pinch of God's call to repent of greed and serve the poor, the needy, and the stranger often feel deep pangs of compassion and sympathy for those living in bondage. They're in chains to, to all kinds of inordinate desires and addictions. We hate to see human beings made in the very image of God caught in such snares. And as we love on them with the love of Christ, 
constantly facing our own inadequacies, by the way, our own sinful tendencies and indifferences, we cringe when some well-meaning brother, or in some instances not so well-meaning, comes into the situation and just lambasts someone we've been trying to lead to Christ for some time. We get defensive. We, our, our motherly or fatherly protectiveness kicks in. And we step in to mitigate the damage done, as we should. But listen, we have absolutely no leg to stand on before God if we swing to the completely opposite error and proceed to act like our friend living in sin, and particularly in defiance of God's creation ordinances, is in good standing with God, that it's okay with their living, with their giving into and being overcome by their sinful desires and pleasures. We cannot do that. But those aren't our only options. Now the devil makes us think that we're either in one or the other camp. We can either choose between being harsh, self-righteous haters or soft, unrighteous enablers. The world, the flesh, and the devil are constantly trying to tell us that it's one or the other. As if truth and love are in opposition one to another. In her article, Love Tells the Hard Truth, Tanner Swanson writes this. I really love the way she puts it. Very picturesque. Some can only imagine love and truth being thrust into the Colosseum together as adversaries. Love, the protagonist, awaits the wily beast that is truth to emerge from the pit. The wrought iron gate cackles as it rises. Truth steps into the light, a fearsome sight to behold. One will win out. They both cannot stand. Um, no. Just no. After all, Jesus himself is the embodiment of both. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is love. Jesus is both. And we are to share a whole Christ with the whole human race as we share the good news of salvation found in Christ. And when he addresses some of the very basic, fundamental truths that were being challenged and attacked in his day, such as the institution of marriage and the creation of man in God's image as male and female and the like, he points us back to the beginning, God's created order, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And if we want to reach a lost and dying world with the hope held out in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then instead of being ashamed of his clear words on these issues, we will acknowledge them as true, right, and holy. For the lost world's sake, for God's glory, and for our own good. Brothers and sisters, May God grant it unto us to tell the truth in love. And may he have mercy on our souls for the times that we are ashamed of Jesus and his words. Oh God, help us in a culture that so desperately needs the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help. We ask you for your grace and your mercy to be upon us in such a way that we don't rely on our own power 
our own strength, our own wisdom, our own ability to stand firm for Jesus and his words. Father, we pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, through the means of grace, your word and prayer and the fellowship of the saints, encouraging one another constantly toward love and good deeds, that we would have that ability to stand firm, to make known the mystery of the gospel with great boldness and clarity and without shame, knowing, Lord, deep in our hearts that it's the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Lord, have mercy and grant your people this grace in this dying world today. We pray it in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.